Two Saturdays in a row, a woman asks her husband to fold the laundry. The first Saturday, the husband says, no, I'm not going to do it. I hate folding laundry. He hems and haws, but then eventually, quite reluctantly, he does it. The second Saturday, the husband says, cheerily, sure, I'll do that for you, and then doesn't do it. Which is worse? Now, I promise I'm not trying to start any fights over lunch. And clearly the correct answer is you'll do it cheerfully and actually then do it. But that wasn't one of the options. And this everyday situation, I'll tell you how everyday it is. I wrote this opening a couple weeks ago and then guess what happened last night? I told my wife that I would do the dishes and guess what's still in the sink this morning? <laughs> Happy Sunday, Emily. <laughs> So this everyday situation, that is so everyday that it was my today, uh, is not too far from a parable that Jesus tells in the Gospels. Except his was about a father with two sons. A father asks his boys to do something. Cut the grass, it's hot out. One says he won't do it and goes and does it. The other says he will do it but doesn't do it. Who, Jesus asked, did the will of his father? It's a question that gets at the heart of discipleship. What is discipleship? Is it saying yes to God? Or is it doing the things that God asked us to do? Ideally, it would be both. But that's not one of the options that Jesus gives us in this hypothetical. Last week, we looked at the character of Joseph of Arimathea. In the Gospel of John, he is connected to Nicodemus as they are together when Joseph asked Pilate for Jesus' deceased body. And we talked about how both of them had an opportunity to stand up to the rest of the Jerusalem council. They had a chance to defend Jesus and prevent his trial from going any further. It's not wrong to say that they had a chance to keep Jesus from being wrongfully executed. They were the second son. They had said yes to God in Jesus Christ, and yet when it mattered most, weren't willing to back up their claims with actions. Today we are going to look at a character who represents the first son. She's someone who, as far as we know, never said yes to God in Jesus Christ, never was a part of the people of faith, and yet when it came down to it, in the crucial moment, she acted. But I'll admit right from the start, we don't know a lot about this person. She doesn't appear very long. In fact, we don't even know her name. But I do think she has a lot to teach us. This morning we are going to be looking at and talking about Pilate's wife, or Mrs. Pilate. Here's her one mention in all of scripture, along with a couple of verses before and after for some context, in Matthew 27. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one of you do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. For I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. 
What shall I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate, but they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. Thus far we have talked about both Pilate and Barabbas, and we've looked at this episode, albeit from a different gospel. The way Matthew tells it is at one of the crucial moments when Pilate is sitting on the judge's seat. As Pilate has heard all the arguments he was going to hear and was ready to render his verdict, his wife sends him word. She calls Jesus an innocent man. She says, don't punish him. She's, she says she's had a dream and it has troubled her greatly. And that's all we get. It does seem like her words have an effect on Pilate, though, because even after the chief priests continue to press for Jesus' execution, Pilate announces he is unconvinced that Jesus is worthy of the death penalty. On the one hand, it seems like Pilate simply ignores the wishes and words of his life, but I don't think that's true. The chief priests, the Jerusalem council, were very important to Pilate keeping, keeping control of the region. They were vital political allies. The politically expedient thing to do would have been to just go along with their wishes, which he does ultimately do. But I don't think that means that he's ignoring the words of his wife. Because he keeps waffling, he keeps questioning, he's unwilling to give in to the chief priests. When he does succumb, Matthew specifically says it's only when he realizes he's about to have a riot on his hands. Absent the riotous crowd, Mrs. Pilate might have been successful. Despite her brief mention in the Gospels, Mrs. Pilate has not been forgotten in the imagination of the broader Christian tradition. Augustine, antiquity's best theological mind, talked about Mrs. Pilate as being a new Eve. In Genesis 3, Eve was the first to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She succumbed to the serpent's temptation and then convinced Adam to do the same, which leads to a, uh, my favorite moment, uh, one of my favorite moments in scripture. Uh, my favorite being when Jesus is risen. Um, but I, another one of my favorites is when Adam gets caught and he's like, this woman whom you gave me. <laughs> Throwing God and Eve under the bus. But anyways, Augustine says here, Mrs. Pilate is doing the opposite. Just as Eve convinced her husband to commit the unrighteous act, here Mrs. Pilate is convincing her husband to do the righteous thing. So Matthew's gospel was written to a Jewish Christian community. And the ancient world was based in oral tradition. Which means members of Matthew's community would have basically memorized all the stories from the Old Testament from tellings and retellings. The same way that I have memorized my family's stories by simple telling and retelling. And they would have had such depth of knowledge that they could have recalled minor details from these stories the same way that Harry Potter fanatics can recover the minor details from scenes you've long forgotten about from every single book. So when Matthew mentions Pilate's wife, what members of his community would think about are the other wives of powerful people throughout the Old Testament. Two would immediately come to mind. In late Genesis, after being sold into slavery by his brothers, Joseph, I got it right this time, winds up in the service of Potiphar, a muckety-muck in the Egyptian government. Joseph runs Potiphar's house with immense skill. The problem is, Potiphar's wife takes a liking to Mr. Joseph, and she tries to seduce him. And when Joseph spurns her advances, she lies to her husband and gets Joseph thrown into jail. 
The other wife that would have come to mind was Haman's wife, Zeresh, from the story of Esther. These people and these stories don't come to our minds, but trust me, if you know what I'm talking about when I say, we were on a break, then you know what it means to get a reference. Matthew is in part making a reference, and if you don't get the reference, I'm sorry. <laughs> Haman was chief advisor to the king of Persia and was attempting to enact a plot to kill all the Jews in Persia. Zeresh helped him in his plot, convincing him to erect gallows, means by which to carry out the genocide. Her plans backfired a bit because the gallows were eventually used for Haman. Hooray! And, I mean, from a certain side, hooray, I guess. <laughs> But when Matthew says Mrs. Pilate is sending word, his audience is primed to expect her to deliver news that would harm Israelites. Wives of powerful people in the Old Testament use their influence to harm Israelites. Instead, Matthew is using Mrs. Pilate to subvert expectations. She doesn't send a message meant to harm an Israelite. Instead, she attempts to save one. Beyond looking at wives of powerful people in the Old Testament, we can also look at Mrs. Pilate in a broader context of the Old Testament as one who has dreams and acts upon them. In Genesis, Abraham and Sarah are traveling around and they come to an area ruled by King Abimelech. Abimelech takes notice of Sarah and Abraham, being just the wonderful husband that he was, says, she's my sister. Abimelech takes her into her household as a concubine. Then God comes to Abimelech in a dream and says, This woman you've taken, she's married. And if you do with her as you intend, you will die. Abimelech returned Sarah to Abraham and then let Abraham live wherever he wanted in the land that Abimelech controlled. Later in Genesis, a couple generations later, Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, has fled to his mother's homeland, having stolen his brother's birthright and blessing. He goes to find a wife. And Jacob, who has swindled his brother, finds himself being swindled by his uncle after attempting to marry his cousin. Seriously, this is in the Bible. Having worked it out and now married both of his cousins, seriously, this is in the Bible, <laughs> Jacob finds a way to repay his uncle's treachery. There's a deal involving which livestock Jacob will be able to take with him when he goes, and Jacob uses a wise understanding of genetics to win the lion's share of the herd, and he departs with it. His uncle, feeling cheated, pursues Jacob, wanting his own revenge. Then Jacob's uncle has a dream where God tells him not to seek revenge on Jacob, but to go home. And so he goes home. Finally, at the very end of Genesis, after Joseph has been sold as a slave in Egypt and has been thrown into prison after the Potiphar's wife thing, Pharaoh has a dream, and it disturbs him greatly. There's a member of Pharaoh's staff who himself had been troubled by dreams while he was in prison and recalled the person still in prison who helped him. He gave the referral to Pharaoh and suddenly Joseph is called before Pharaoh to interpret this dream. Turns out God was telling Pharaoh there would be seven years of plenty in Egypt and then seven years of famine. Joseph rightly interprets this dream which allowed Egypt to effectively prepare for the famine. What do all of these dreams have in common? In all three... God is speaking to people outside of God's chosen people, outside of the people Israel, to see that God's purposes and promises are fulfilled. And here we have Mrs. Pilate receiving a warning dream concerning the execution of God's son. Mrs. Pilate is also a Gentile, also someone out of God's covenant community of Israel. And while the cross was certainly within the purposes and promises of God, her warning Pilate is a signal that God has a vested interest in Jesus of Nazareth. 
Her inclusion in this crucial moment is a trigger to us that what is about to happen with Jesus relates to the ultimate purpose and promise of God. But this isn't the first time in Matthew's Gospel where a person or people outside of God's covenant community had a warning dream concerning Jesus. Way back in the beginning, Magi come to see Jesus. They come by way of Herod. We three kings of Orient are. Herod helps them find out where Jesus is, and the Magi agree that after they find Jesus, they will come back to Herod and tell him where the child is, because uh, Herod wants to worship Jesus. <laughs> They come to Jesus and the Magi worship him. But before they leave to go back to Herod, they are warned by God in a dream not to go see Herod. Because it's pretty clear to really anyone except for the wise Magi that Herod has no intention of worshiping Jesus but wants to kill Jesus. And so they return home a different route following God's directive. Once again, we see a group of people outside of God's covenant community receive communication from God via a dream in which God is seeking to extend his purposes and promises within God's chosen people. And we see people outside God's covenant community receive a message concerning Jesus and follow it. Which means that within the context of Matthew's gospel, the folks outside of the covenant community have a better batting average with respect to Jesus than the people within the covenant community. What does this all teach us? Why have I been talking about dreams and lots of, lots of people whose names I got right, I promise, for like 10 minutes? As Christians, as, as people of faith, we have a particular vocabulary. We can talk about God speaking to us through prayer, or being called, or being led. We can talk about divine appointments or God incidences. All of this is bundled within the category of revelation, seeing and hearing God and most importantly, recognizing it as God's speech as such. Revelation was the mode of God's speech within Matthew's gospel to God's covenant people. But it isn't the only way that God speaks in Matthew's gospel. There's this other category of dreams. Folks outside the covenant community, folks outside our Christian community, have a different vocabulary concerning supernatural events. They talk about feelings of transcendence, feelings of immense connection. They talk about looking for a sense of purpose. It's much less defined and more and more feeling and emotion based. Church people have a vocabulary, have language around which to put feelings. People outside the church simply have feelings. Sometimes we can be conditioned to think that if someone has a profound experience that comes outside of the prescribed ways and methods we use to communicate with God, that it's somehow invalid. What Mrs. Pilate can teach us is that God has many ways to communicate with people and that God communicates with people outside of the church community. If I were rewriting that sentence, I'd probably flip it. What she can teach us is that God communicates with people outside of the Christian community and that God has many ways of communicating with people. God is communicating with people in your neighborhood. God is communicating with people at your work. God is communicating with people in your family. It might be different from the way that you communicate with God, but it isn't necessarily any less valid. And our job is to nurture what God is doing. Our job is to be with people in their moments of transcendent experience. Our job is to invite them to respond in whatever way they can. Last week we talked about how easy it is to become a Christian in the dark, 
like Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus. Folks who seek to do acts of piety in private, but are unwilling to bring their faith into the public sphere. And we talked about how we can be invited to take small steps to bring our faith out into the light of day. Here I'd invite us to consider the opposite. When folks in our lives are doing the will of God, when they're doing the things that God calls us to do, loving our neighbors as ourselves, serving our humanity, working for mercy and justice, and doing so out of some feeling that this is how life ought to be lived, we need to see this as God working and moving and acting in their lives. And we ought to, in every way we can, connect what they are feeling and experiencing and doing to the larger story of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And we ought to invite everyone to be about the things that God wants us to be in the world. I know there are a lot of you who are constantly inviting friends and family and neighbors and coworkers and people in your circle to church events and are often frustrated when the return is minimal. You invite them to church on Easter. You invite them to church when we have a special event. You invite them to other events outside of morning worship on Sunday mornings and they won't come to any of it. If it has church in the name, they won't come. Which I know can be frustrating. Perhaps the lesson for you today is that it's okay to simply invite them to be part of our service initiatives. To help with flood buckets or food or CVBS to tap into their sense of serving others who have been affected by tragedy, to claim their compassion as an act of God and to nurture what God is already doing in their life, and to invite them to do the will of God in the world even if they don't know that they are saying yes to their Father. There are more than two types of people in this world, but we began with a parable Jesus told that presented a dichotomy. We explored last week the ways in which we can say yes to our Father and then not do as we are called. In looking at Mrs. Pilate, my hope is we can see that there are times in which people say no to their father and still go about doing his will. And as members of God's covenant community, we can connect what God is doing in their lives, how God is creating a desire and allowing that desire to be acted upon, and can connect their actions with the larger work of God in the world. Let us pray.